How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 130 of X-Lapsed, where we are still in Exitens, but not for much longer. We are just about there. We're actually ending with how we started. You know, we started with X-Men and Excalibur, and it looks like that's how we'll be wrapping things up, too. X-Men and Excalibur, and then our big finale in Destruction. Today's X-Men, so let's get into it. Uh... X-Men, as you guys, if you're if you're a long-time listener, you know that this has not been my favorite book of this line. It's actually teetered toward the bottom. So let's see how this one plays out. Uh, this is X-Men, Volume 5, Number 15, at a January 2021 cover date. Story is X of Swords, Chapter 20. Written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Mahmoud Azrar. Colors, Sonny Go, Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles, Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Beasel White Zabolski. Cover price, $3.99. This one went on sale November 25th of 2020, and I'm pretty sure the rest of X of Tens all came out on November 25th of 2020, so it was a pretty big day for uh, folks who were buying them off the rack and reading them as they got them, like normal people do and not like what I do. Anyway... We open, not on a mostly blank quote page, that actually comes at the very end of the issue, but on actual comics content. How about that? Now we see Cyclops. He's stood over a serene waterfall on Krakoa. He's alone with his thoughts for the moment, until he's, until he's joined by Jean Grey, who informs him that the Quiet Council is ready for them. Now they talk a little bit about their home, you know, Krakoa. Uh, also about their opportunity to have family and how that was their dream all along. And this kind of facilitates a discussion and allows us to consider other dreams that maybe they've worked toward over the years. Uh, namely, that pesky one that kind of informs everything we ever knew about the X-Men. You know, that whole peaceful coexistence thing. Scott and Jean agree that, uh, well, it really didn't do them much good, which, sad as it may seem, is hard to debate. Whatever the case, Scott and Jean want to save their boy, and uh, probably the rest of the Krakoan contingent as well that are, you know, currently stuck over in another world uh, doing the the whole sword fighting thing. And so they're going to need to sell this idea to the Quiet Council. And they depart through a gateway and arrive right before the Quiet Council, so uh, easy peasy, at least so far. Roll call. Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Professor X, Magneto, Nightcrawler, Emma Frost, Call Me Kate, Sebastian Shaw, Mystique, Exodus, Mr. Sinister, Apocalypse, Genesis, and Saturnine. Double page spread of creds, and then back to comics and back to Otherworld, where it's about time for our main event. Now, the stipulations aren't made abundantly clear here, so it seems to me that this 
isn't really a gimmick match, likely just the standard, you know, to the death or inability to continue sort of a deal. Apocalypse, is, of, of course, is going to be Apocalypse in Genesis. Now, Apocalypse asks his wife to remove the Annihilation helmet before they tussle, and she actually does. Uh, she comments that she didn't think he wanted to look her in the eyes while she, you know, beat the bejesus out of him. But looks like she was wrong. And so, masks off, the battle begins. But we don't stick around all that long because... Oh boy, we've got us uh, over a half dozen nine-panel grid pages to go over. Uh, you all remember when Alan Moore did that in Watchmen and we all called it genius? Yeah, well, it kind of was back then. Now, to me, it's a sign that you're trying to make your story seem more, um, I don't know, uh, important than it actually is. And yeah, I am totally projecting here. What this comes down to is a discussion of the needs of the many versus the needs of the few. Now, Cyclops is attempting to sell the council on allowing him and a strike force to enter Otherworld to save his son and, of course, the rest of their pals. Scott refers to this as a smash-and-grab operation. You know, head in, hit them hard, get out. Shaw questions the logic of such an endeavor, though he does glibly sympathize with Cyclops' plight. He does think this idea is a bad one. Scott states that he will use the Avalon Gate to enter via King Jamie the Weirdo's kingdom, then they'll pull the smash-and-grab. They'll head home, and then they'll destroy the Avalon Gate. Emma furrows her brow, realizing that this will cut them off from Otherworld forever. Which, I mean, would that really be the worst thing? I happen to know one idiot who would love for that to happen. And heck, if you're listening to this program, you know one idiot who would love for that to happen as well. Now, upon hearing this, Mr. Sinister creepily wishes Cyclops luck. It's very, very bizarre here. Uh, But it would help Sinister cover whatever tracks he's trying to cover. So, I could see it. Now, Magneto and Exodus, they chime in, taking the tack that, you know, maybe maybe Cyclops isn't successful in this mission. And if that's the case, what happens then? You know, if he's to take a strike force into Otherworld and they happen to lose, well, that would leave Krakoa wide open for an attack, for an invasion. Now, Shaw asks how Scott plans to control the gateways, to which he reminds us all that Beast swiped some tech from horticulture back during the Empire cash-in, which is a story I never imagined we'd get a callback to, and uh, maybe in healthier days of the industry, a callback like that would have turned that issue into a wizard hot book, you know? It's like, ooh, this is when he stole the tech. Buy it now before it sells out. Anyway, Scott is insistent that A, he's going, and B, he's not going to fail. Sinister again wishes him well, but comments that they likely won't see him or his kind ever again. Jean reminds Sinister that she's going to be accompanying Scott. Nightcrawler then raises his hand, and Kate does as well. They want to go too. Now Shaw says there's absolutely no way that can happen. They can't allow upwards of half the Quiet Council to head off on what might just be a suicide mission. And, I mean, we got to remember, Apocalypse and Storm are both parts of the Quiet Council, and they're already in Otherworld doing God knows what. So this would be like four or five members off the grid here. And so Shaw demands a vote. Now, if a member of the Council decides to join Cyclops on his fool's errand, they therefore relinquish their position on the Council. And the motion carries. 
And so, Jean gives up her seat, at least for now. Nightcrawler also goes to give up his seat, but Jean stops him. She reminds him, and the readers, that Kurt is the soul of the place. Which has kind of been Kurt's soul-defining characteristic forever? They, they really need to change the record, I think. Now, Kitty still wants to go as well, but Cyclops reminds her that they're going to be using a gateway, which, as we know, she is unable to use. Now, Emma suggests that Scott's lying to call me Kate about using a gateway, but I suppose that'll have to remain to be seen. She then tele- telepathically asks Scott if, she w- if he wants her to go with him, to which he replies that he knows that she won't, so he would never ask her. She thanks him and tells him that she'll ready the cuckoos to help him. The question is then raised about what Krakoa ought to do when Cyclops and company head out. Like, do they leave the gateways open, or do they protect their interests and close them up? Well, they vote again, and they vote to close them up. Which makes me wonder, just how in the world are they expecting Scott and the gang to get back home? It's almost like they're just tossing them into a pit or something, unless I'm missing something, which is certainly possible. Now, it's worth noting, Professor X has voted for both motions to this point, both to remove anyone who goes with Scott from the council and also to close the gates behind them. Xavier apologizes to Scott, and he reminds him that their plight is bigger now than just one person. He's all about Krakoa the Nation and not so much about his X-Men. More on that in a second. But first... Hey, a page of fighting between Apocalypse and Genesis, simply to remind us that, hey, this is still going on. Back to the Council. Now, Scott discusses what Krakoa and the Quiet Council are. And we know this. They're a nation and its government. But they're still the X-Men. And the X-Men are heroes. Scott and Jean leave the Council, and as they do, Xavier smiles, and Magneto uh, whispers, good boy. You know, he's happy. That Cyclops is taking this tack here. Even though they didn't vote for it, they're still happy that he's showing uh, a little bit of a, I don't know, maybe X-Men pride. Now this takes us to an info page, and it's a weird one. It's about the Krakoan government and the X-Men. You know, this is a book called The X-Men. This is a family of books that we usually refer to as X-Men, but uh, one thing we really haven't seen a whole lot of is... uh, you know, the X-Men <laughs> in this uh, in this flagship book. Now, this couple of pages here, this info page comes with two. And it sort of kind of massages everything that I've hated about this volume of X-Men into having a sort of meaning. I still don't care for it, but at least we're making an effort to explain why this book has been so damn directionless to this point. Now, you see, since Hoxpox and the founding of Krakoa as the mutant nation, the mutant homeland, whatever, concepts like the X-Men have been made redundant. They're simply not needed anymore. And therefore, there are no X-Men anymore. It's just outdated. It's not a thing. Now, like I said, I don't like it, and it doesn't make the year's worth of stories in this volume any more satisfying. I'm pretty sure I will never, ever read them again. But at least it's an attempt at an explanation. Though, I feel like this might be a decision of convenience rather than something that was planned from the start. Eh, Maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit. Plus, for such a 
big story beat. I mean, this is the dissolution of the X-Men. This is confirmation that the X-Men are no longer a team and haven't been a team since Hoxpox. For such a big, meaty piece of the story, this really shouldn't have been just dropped in an info page. I think this is too important a deal for that. And keep in mind, I'm still working under the assumption that there are a good portion of X-Men readers out there who only skim or outright skip the info pages. So this was likely missed by a bunch of folks. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit as well. But first, back to Otherworld. Genesis swipes at Apocalypse and manages to shatter his scarab sword, leaving only the hilt and a few inches of blade behind. She suggests that her husband yield, to which he disarms her and runs her own blade right through her. She goes down and begs for her husband to finish the job. Instead, he simply drops the sword. He turns to Saturnine and tells her that he doesn't want this. Saturnine basically tells him, sucks to be you because this bout demands a victor. Now we wrap up with Genesis reclaiming the Annihilation Helmet, meaning that uh, this fight will continue. Perhaps next episode in the pages of Excalibur number 15. But... That, my friends, is a discussion for another day. Let's talk about the issue we just read. And my main takeaway here is, um, well, the one I kind of dwelled upon during the synopsis here, the fact that the the X-Men are no more, officially, right? Uh, Or maybe they're back with this issue. But uh, we learned that for a while, there were no X-Men anymore. Let's, uh... (laughs) Let's talk about that for a little bit here. Uh, you know, there's... On that info page, um, there's kind of talk about X-Men being kind of the the Kleenex for mutant, right? Rather than just saying mutant, people just say X-Men. And uh, I can understand that being something that the nation of Krakoa would like to maybe distance itself from because... The X-Men don't have the shiniest uh, and spotlessest history, uh, especially during the Lost Decade, I think they called it during uh, the first issue of uh, House of X. We had the X-Men as revolutionaries. We had Cyclops as very militant. We had them going to war with the Inhumans. We had Emma Frost killing thousands of Inhumans during uh, during Inhumans vs. X-Men. Uh, nameless ones, obviously, but... The X-Men don't really have the cleanest record here. So this feels like an attempt inside the book, of course, uh, to make Krakoan the Kleenex for mutant, right? Rather than saying mutant, they could just say Krakoan because it's the same thing. They're not all adventurers. They're not all superheroes. They all have powers, but they're not all... They're not all uh, vigilantes, superheroes, you know. You know what I'm trying to say, I think. They're trying to kind of massage the narrative on what it means to be a mutant. A mutant can just be another, you know, person on the planet trying to live their life. Not someone who's going to be in colorful spandex or or black leather or anything like that. Not going to be someone fighting on the street. It's just going to be a person. And I understand that. I don't like how it was delivered. I feel like something like this should have been made clear way before now. I mean, it could have been a story thread. It could have been something that could have worked its way through this volume of X-Men. Like I said, I don't know if it would have made anything more satisfying, but at least it would have given us a little bit of context and uh, 
Context is one of the things that is sorely missing from this volume of X-Men because it's just all over the place. There have been some fantastic issues of this, but there has been a lot of just X-Men Unlimited-type stories here. Uh, Cyclops on a field trip with the kids. Uh, Horde culture showing up. Um, Brew eating the damn egg. It's just been kind of scattershot. Now, the fact that it was given to us in an info page feels... Feels like it kind of takes the wind out of the sails of the of the revelation. It makes it feel not important when it really ought to be, right? Um, like Cyclops drops his bombshell. Not not so much a bombshell, even. He's just like, "Hey, we are the X Men." He doesn't really even say that uh, we're not allowed to be the X Men anymore. It's just, "Hey, we are the X Men," you know. Um, The info page, it's just like, hey, just in case it wasn't clear what Cyclops just said, here is an explanation to make it totally clear. Um, That, to me, is not good storytelling. (laughs) It's just a sign that the story beat is maybe a bit oblique and unclear. Because, like I said, this should have been clear for a long time now. Um... And, and also, let's look at it in the context of the stories that we have gotten here. I mean, the X-Men are no more. Except for the fact that they all still wear X's on their belts, have teams that start with the letter X, and are still called the X-Men by themselves and just about everyone else. Uh, this revelation is like, hey guys, the X-Men have stopped X-Mening, except for all the times they X-Mend, but now they're going to start X-Mening again, only officially. The band is back together, but we never had any indication that they were gone in the first place. It feels very, very weird. Very unsatisfying. Um, it's almost, It almost feels like a last-minute thing, though I know it wasn't. You know, it feels like, oh, maybe we should explain why there hasn't been an X-Men team. Uh, we do know that there will be a team coming up uh, eventually, because we just voted on the final member, right? I don't know who won the vote. I'm assuming Polaris did from uh, from the the first you know ballots that were ca- counted, but uh, I guess we'll find out as we go along here. Let's keep it on a same the same wavelength here and talk a little bit about the dream. Now the dream is the dream's a very convenient um, story device, uh, you know X Men trope to dwell on here uh it's used to add like an artificial amount of weight to a comment or an op- an observation or a situation we always talk about you know the dream is dead how many times have we heard the dream is dead or how many times have we heard somebody say ah the dream is not for me you know th- this dream your dream is fruitless this dream is not going to work it feels like that's something that gets trotted out Every so often to add weight to a story. Um, and here we have Cyclops and uh, Jean talking about like, hey, you know, when, when how did this dream work for us? And it feels like it's just artificial weight. You know, it doesn't feel uh, genuine. It doesn't feel organic. It just feels like just one of those things that X-Men writers like to write. You know, it's up there with, to me, my X-Men. You know, it's just like, we don't need this in, in every time to establish the fact that you are writing the X-Men right now. Don't know. Uh, we, we can look at Krakoa. 
and the fact that, like we mentioned earlier, uh, the with the Kleenex um, observation here, that mutant now equals Krakoan rather than equaling, you know, vigilante, which might mean that we are actually getting closer to Xavier's dream of peaceful coexistence, right? Because if they're able to swing the narrative to the point where mutants are looked at as just people from a different country, um, that might be closer than, you know, these people who are protecting the world who fears and hates them. It's I guess it's maybe a little bit more relatable, um, easier to wrap your mind around, especially with the Krakoans being productive global citizens in that they've got these magic flowers and these magic medicines that are going to help humanity. You know, it's maybe this is the closest that Xavier's dream has has come to uh, coming to pass. It's possible. It's possible. And uh, I suppose Cyclops being more about bringing the X-Men back as a concept and sort of sort of uh, hinting that yeah, the dream never really did anything for us. Look where it got us. Maybe that's setting us up for a schism, uh, you know, another schism during Reign of X. I mean, stranger things have happened. I- I'll be interested to see how this plays out once we do get an official X-Men team. Because I could see them being maybe uh, a little bit of a, uh, a bump in the road for the government of Krakoa. Maybe they'll be, maybe they'll be at odds. And we also have Nightcrawler getting his own book with the Way of X. Uh, there might be some bumpy times ahead. And uh, definitely uh, interesting uh, food for thought. Definitely interesting potential stories coming our way. So we just got to get through this damn sword fight to get there. Uh, which takes me to my next point here. Let's talk about the sword fight. Which doesn't really get a whole lot of time. But then again, it really doesn't need to. You know, um... I feel like we've been building to this one that any sort of way it would have been delivered, at least for this preamble part of it, would have been a letdown. We've been building to this, well, not Annihilation yet, but Genesis versus Apocalypse, ever since we saw Genesis show up in Stasis, right? And I think we all kind of had an idea that she was probably still around, because we did know that the creepy summoner is a liar and... You know, he told the story of her dying, so it stands to reason that she did not. And, of course, she did not. This first round here, it reminds me of playing a role-playing game. And so much of X of Tens reminds me of a role-playing game. I don't know if that's intentional. I don't know if that's just... I don't know if that's just the way it happened to to turn out. But, I mean, if you've ever played a role-playing game and you get to the final boss, right... You get to Sephiroth in Final Fantasy VII. You beat him, but that wasn't his true form. He comes back and you fight him again. You know, it, it happened. It's like a trope in role-playing games. You, it's just you're always going to go through phases of the final fight. And here we are, Apocalypse. You know, slices right through Genesis. Well, then she puts on the Annihilation helmet, and hey, <laughs> he only beat Phase One of the big boss. So. We're gonna we're gonna see phase two, and hopefully it's only two <laughs> in the next couple of issues. But it's weird just how uh, role playing gamey this entire event has been. Um, 
I've seen a lot of folks mention that it's kind of like D&D. Uh, it is kind of like D&D. It's also kind of like Final Fantasy. It's just this weird amalgamation of uh, tabletop and console role-playing games here. Very strange, but I'm glad we didn't spend too much time on Apocalypse and Genesis just jabbing at each other. I think it got the amount of room it needed. I definitely did appreciate the fact that we were more focused on Krakoa right now because that's really more interesting. And though the revelation that the X-Men are no longer a thing really didn't rock my socks the way I think they expected it to, um, I did very much enjoy the, the way that scene played out. I like Cyclops being the guy to say, you know what, enough of this crap, you know? I, he understands the need for diplomacy, and it's weird that the Quiet Council is acting diplomatic with the interdimensional witch queen. You know, it seems like we're we're worried about ruffling feathers here. But Cyclops points out at the end of the day, they are the X Men. You know, that's that's why they're here. That's why they're together in the first place. And uh, I like that. I think that Cyclops really needs. He really needs to uh, get a little bit of a shine here. And uh, I, I, th- I really wish he was more part of the, you know, the day-to-day operations of this book. Uh, he does come around, but he's really not the Cyclops of old. And, and this is the first time in a long time that I see him actually feeling like the Cyclops that I grew up with. You know, the sort of headstrong, but, you know, means to an end and uh, fighting the good fight. Not leaving any any man, woman, or child behind. It's It was refreshing to see, and I'm happy to see him stepping into that role again, and I look forward to seeing more of it. Uh, one last thing about the issue. The art. Uh, Mahmoud Azrar, um, a bit muddy. A bit muddy. I don't know if that's him or the colorist, but... This felt. This is definitely not up to the uh, the standard that we we'd come to expect from Azrar and uh, Sunny Go. This was plotty, you know, muddy. Uh, felt. It looked like uh, a mid '90s comic uh, when they first changed from newsprint to the glossy paper. It's like that weird, like kind of blistery. You know, you could never really read it under a light because the light would just like kind of glare on it. And uh, the comment that I would usually make is it looked like you could put your finger on a panel and kind of swirl the colors around because that was just that muddy. And it kind of looked like that here. And I don't I don't necessarily know why, because the last issue of X-Men, Azrar only had to do the framing sequence because we reused all the Lionel U stuff. So I don't know. I don't know what, they, what Marvel has these artists doing. He might have had three or four other books he had to get out, but... This one uh, was a bit of a letdown on the art side And uh, probably just a sign that this story was a little too bloated uh, Too uh, too packed with pages and panels and uh, pencils, I guess uh, Really, I, I'm, I'm curious to know uh, from folks who, who bought this in the collection I'm sure there's a you know, collection, an omnibus of X of Swords Either out now or coming out soon I'd like to know how the art holds up as you read through it Because uh, even Phil Noto, last time in Cable Definitely not up to what a Phil Noto can do And here Azrar, similarly, not up to uh, the usual level of quality that we would expect from him But 
that'll do it for X-Men number 15. Uh, overall, um, I would say that I come away from this positive. Uh, while I did dwell on certain bits of this this book, um, I did mostly enjoy reading it. So definitely a good sign for the X-Men flagship book, <laughs> because I don't know the last time I actually was happy about an issue of it. But net positive, I enjoyed it. Um, that said, I... Still can't wait for the Exoswords to be over. <laughs> I really, really can't. But enough about all that. Let's hop into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Excalibur number 14, which was the uh, the first of the fights. Kind of when we, when we realized just how strange this second half of the story was really going to be. Damien says, I remember when this issue of Excalibur was first released. I saw a lot of people upset that the first half of the storyline became pointless. If they're not going to have sword fights, then why did we have so many stories about swords? Ultimately, I was of the opinion that the best issues of this crossover had not been about swords. They were about characters. In fact, the only time the story was genuinely about sword was when I was, ready, when I was nearly ready to give it up during the Wolverine two-parter. And you're right. You're right. Um, like, I, I think I said this during the discussion of uh, Excalibur 14 that I wasn't looking forward to Skadey 800 sword fights. You know, I didn't want this to be AVX versus. I, I didn't want just fight after fight after fight. But eh, there's something to be said about the investment of time and effort in following and analyzing these stories. And, and again, these are X-lapsed problems. These are Chris problems. Um, really just problems with my process in, in creating content here, where I spent dozens of hours collecting swords with these people. <laughs> and uh, when I see that the swords are... Uh, when I see Saturn, and go, no, no, you're not going to need the sword for this one. It's just kind of a kick in the crotch. <laughs> And really left a uh, an odd taste in my mouth. It was just like, why did I waste all that time? I could have just skipped all of it. Uh, Damien continues. I was delighted to see whimsical competitive events that are not necessarily sword fights. The wedding between Doug and Bay appeared to come out of nowhere, but on a reread of New Mutants, we saw it trailed. Doug says, seriously, stop hitting me in the face. It's my moneymaker. And Ilyana responds, I'd be more worried about your face if I was preparing you for a wedding and not a funeral. I can't believe Ed Brisson slipped that in so delicately. It makes me wonder if Saturnine was listening in and chose that event for Doug after hearing that. That's a really good possibility, isn't it? We know Saturnine is screwing with everybody, left, right, and center. So, yeah, that stands to reason. That could certainly be something that, uh, that Saturnine did uh, with purpose. Damien continues, There's no doubt that we have, con we have to continually consider Saturnine's motivations in this tournament. She wants to consolidate her power, and she wants Betsy's beautiful blonde brother to be Captain Britain. It's clearly no coincidence that she pits Betsy against Iska the Unbeaten. She resents Betsy and doesn't want her to be Captain Britain. Well, she's got her wish. There's nothing to stop Brian from taking the role of Captain Britain now as it no would no longer be an attack on his sister. And that's one thing that I've uh, that I've try I'm trying to figure out here, and it's weird because while there's been there have been so many parts to this story, right? And there's been so much build to this story, even going back to I mean X Men number two, we saw the the Summoner shows up and the there's the island merging, you know, 
this has been built up for so long I still it still sort of feels like we're building a house on Swampland though because I don't know what Saturnine wants other than Brian to be Captain Britain I don't know what her motivations are and I feel like 20 parts into this story and with all the build up we should maybe have an idea <laughs> and we just don't it's very very weird uh, Damien continues You seem surprised that the Krakoans weren't more upset about Betsy's death I suspect the intention was that they didn't see any bloodshed So they didn't believe she's really dead A broken mirror can be mended Of course, a line of dialogue would have helped to clarify that Talking of dialogue, I have to agree that Wolverine is, is slightly wrong throughout this issue He's slightly too much of a caricature of toxic masculinity Where he should be a little bit more sardonic and self-depreciating in his humor he could have made the same joke about marriage, but followed it with, Hey, did I ever tell you about the time I married Viper? And it would have been less jarring. There definitely should have been some sort of dialogue, uh, just reflecting on Betsy's uh, apparent demise here, because they got over it real quick. You know, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in another letter here, but it just felt like a they checked it off a list, like, nah, Betsy's dead. <laughs> Now let's move on uh, Captain, Brit uh, Captain Avalon, of course He reacted He reacted more viscerally And he tried to, to, you know, lunge at Saturnine But after that It's just like, hey, next event And everyone was just cool with it And I don't, I don't know how they all Were just all Chuckle-headed at the wedding Right after Betsy went to bits It just felt very, I don't know Dismissive Especially since we don't know we know that Otherworld's a different place. We know Otherworld's just a strange and bizarre and whimsical place. And what is death in Otherworld? You know, is death in Otherworld bleeding out? Is death, you know, uh, just stopping breathing? Or is it busting into a million pieces like Betsy did? Is it all three? Is it none of the above? We don't know. I, I, I just feel like... There should have been time to pause and maybe a little bit of pushback. You have Saturn and I be like, okay, time for the next bout. And they're like, nah, screw you, lady. <laughs> you know, let us let us mourn for a minute because this is someone we've known for many, many years, for an entire lifetime for Brian. It's, you know, screw you, lady. It's we we need to we need to lick our wounds for a minute. But instead we went to the the funny haha wedding and it just didn't work for me. Uh, Damien continues The best part of this issue was definitely the art I've been loving Marcus toe on Excalibur But Phil Noto was phenomenal He was able to do everything he's asked to do And he makes it look so good He really is the MVP of this issue Anyway, until Jim Jaspers loses a bet Make my neck lapsed. And yeah, Noto Noto was wonderful in this issue um, I don't think there's a better, better artist in the stable who could have done the scene of Betsy shattering and made it work as well as uh, Noto did. It was really, really well done. Definitely um, the strongest part of the issue. And, uh, you know, on reflection here, because I've been trying to be a little bit softer on my, <laughs> on my uh, reactions to these because I'm trying to just accept them for what they are because they're not going to be what we expect them to be. That's kind of the whole gimmick of this thing. Uh, every expectation we have is being subverted, for better or worse. And, you know, on reflection here, taking it for what it is, I mean, the wedding is what it was. Um, my main problem with this is the way that our, that our characters reacted. 
um, the events in and of themselves are fine because this is silliness. We had, I mean, we had a who can kill a cat contest, who would bang a rock contest. We're in for silly things, and uh, it's just par for the course. It's you mentioned that this is more about you know the the best parts of this have been about the characters here, and I feel like they failed in that regard in this issue of Excalibur because. The characters really didn't get to be characters. Um, they were just there. Uh, they didn't react the way I felt they should have. And I mean, I mean that's yeah, it's probably more Chris problems, but uh, it was what it was. <laughs> but uh, I definitely appreciate your thoughts on the issue here. It was uh, the first of many very very strange ones, and uh, I was definitely looking forward to uh, hearing and sharing your thoughts on the uh, on the more fighty fighty. For lack of a better term Chapters of X of Ten So thank you so much, Damien uh, Next up, we got Andrew Franklin Talking about Hellions number six He starts with Thank heavens for Hellions This issue was a great read Made greater by my relative non-interest In the rest of the chapters of this crossover uh, We all know that Saturnine's contest has been underway for some time And it's been 12 chapters since the team left on their mission So having their misadventures be unseen by us is a smart decision It really feels like they've been gone for a significant amount of time And letting our imaginations fill in the blanks is smart Because this story isn't really about their journey through Otherworld Seeing them battered and bruised tells us everything that we need to know about what they've been through And I agree I definitely agree and it, it kind of, um, it's funny because I talk a lot about the bloat here, but they could have had Hellions number six be them trekking through Otherworld, and Hellions number six could have been Hellions number seven. And they didn't do that. <laughs> I think that's definitely addition by subtraction there. We don't need to see that. We don't need to see them going through Dryador. We don't need to see Havoc plucking out his eye to pay a toll. We don't need that. We're told that that's what happens, and we see them, and they're just dead tired. And they're beaten and bruised and battered and exhausted, and that's all we need to know. It's uh, one of those things that I think um, Zeb Wells does so well is knowing what to put into the books and knowing what doesn't need to be in the book. We talked about this during the Quiet Council session on whether or not Madeline Pryor is a real girl or not. He knew that we didn't need to see that session Because to see it would only complicate it So we get this really subtle take Where it's just like, hey, they voted no And that's all we know because that's all we need to know It helps us to sympathize with the characters more It helps us to question authority more Which I feel like this book is really, really Putting in the back of our minds here We question authority in Hellions Because every authority is screwing them over whether it's the Quiet Council, you know, trying to decide whether they're going to put them in stasis in the beginning, or if they're just going to send them on therapeutic suicide missions, or their field leader, Mr. Sinister, literally killing them. So we're being trained to question authority in this book. And to do so, we don't need to get all the information, because to do it would kind of draw a line under things. It would make too fine a line. Uh, Andrew continues. And Zeb Wells wastes no time once this issue starts. They're in a menth, and we learn that this was all a big fake-out by Sinister. It's the most obvious twist in hindsight, and I didn't really see it coming. I feel like Sinister has just been shown as silly and campy and so much lately that both the characters and the audience have let their guards down. Sinister is dangerous, and he's evil. 
and Wells did an amazing job writing him in this issue. I didn't even think about him purposely insulting Magneto to ensure he'd be sent on the mission until you pointed it out. That's a cunning move on Sinister's part and great plotting by Wells. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. We should have seen this coming, but we didn't because... They're subverting expectations here, and I love the way you worded that there, that we let our guards down on Sinister because he's being presented as a clown, so we're seeing him as a clown. When really, he is the guy with bodies in barrels. <laughs> you know, he is the guy running a black market clone operation. He is a scary and dangerous dude. But we, we see him as a clown because that's how he projects himself. Um, him insulting Magneto to get sent on the mission. Beautifully done. So subtle. So perfect. Gives him all the deniability he needs to keep him looking clean in the uh, in the view of the Quiet Council and of his team, who, when they come back, they're going to have no memory of this. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing what Wells has done with a book that I had zero hopes for. <laughs> He's really made it. Uh, you know, one of the best books, if not the best book of this line. Andrew continues. I was under the impression that the Hellions who died in a month were going to be scrambled like Rockslide when they were resurrected, so their death struck me a little more than maybe they were supposed to. I thought that Wells was really going to screw up half the team and play around with what that means, but your view in that they weren't in Otherworld, so they wouldn't be scrambled, makes sense. I guess I'm not really clear on what counts as Otherworld. Why did the Amenthi have to travel through Otherworld, then? Maybe my eyes glazed over when that was explained. Great point. And, you know, it was one of those things that I had to... That I... I had to, like, think about. Because I assumed, just like you did, that, okay, well, Nanny's gonna come back all weird, uh, Orphan Maker's gonna come back all weird, and Wild Child's gonna come back all weird, which... Those are three of our weirdest characters already. So I think that there's opportunity there to change them up, to scramble them, to make them different. So I just assumed that, oh, okay, well, they're going to they're gonna face a similar rock slidey sort of resurrection. But then it's like, wait, were they in Otherworld or were they in Amenth or Araco, wherever the hell they were? I don't understand the map. <laughs> you know, the map is weird. It's the, uh, I think I've called it uh, Baby's First Grant Morrison's Multiversity Map. It's just circles. <laughs> And I don't know where they where they attach, what they what they mean. Are they symbolic? Are they literal? Who knows? Um, and really, at the end of the day, who who cares? Because I think when the story's over, we're going to be done with the lion's share, or hopefully, we'll be done with the lion's share of it anyway. Andrew continues. The deaths this issue didn't feel meaningless or gratuitous like they often can in these X-Books. I felt the sorrow and desperation they must have experienced in the brutal way the Amenthi just ripped through them and the surprising betrayal just as the survivors reached what they thought was safety. It was disturbing and sad to see that Sinister still had a failsafe inside Grey Crow from his days as a marauder. You know, the old marauders, the legacy marauders. I don't remember being told why Grey Crow was, still, was around but not the other marauders, but this version was still a product of Sinister's cloning lab, something I hadn't considered until Sinister whipped out his little button and turned Grey Crow into a puddle of melted acidic mutant. This book is so good. Yeah, a lot to, uh, a lot to break down in that, uh, in that statement there. Um... The deaths here felt, they felt different than what we've gotten from, from uh, basically the entire Dawn of X run at this point. These were not played for comedy. These were not played 
for uh, there, there was a there was a means to them, right? It's not often that we actually see a death that's so plotted out and with just so much rationale behind it because we know we know that Sinister did this to protect his secret, right? We know that the Hellions that made it back to Krakoa, no question, they're going to be able to come back. You know, they're going to be able to go through the resurrection process or protocol. We're going to we're going to see Quanon again. Havoc will be back. Grey Crow will be back. Empath will be back. And everything will be cool. And they'll have no memory of being killed by Sinister. Sinister's going to say, hey, you were ripped to shreds by those, you know, the, the Locust Vile. <laughs> and that'll be the end of it. They're not going to know about his DNA harvesting. They're not going to know that he literally stabbed them in the back. It's really good stuff. It's really, really good stuff here. And Grey Crow being melted down. More more great callbacks here. It's just another one of the... It's We talk in the Ex-Lapsination series about, uh, you know, the back your back issues matter. And this felt like a situation where, hey, your back issues matter. We're going to actually... We're going to actually call back to something. Andrew continues. I'm a fan of Psylocke in this book. I really like the brief moment between Psylocke and Sinister. I don't remember anything from Fallen Angels, really. Just that they had, they had come to some arrangement. And I like that Wells doesn't brush that stuff aside. I enjoy what he's doing with her in this book, and I have no doubt that if he were to bring some of that story into Hellions, it would be it would be very well done. And really, if this book could be called Fallen Angels, it would make sense as a title. And I gotta assume that uh, this what this was like the continuation of Fallen Angels because it just makes too much sense, right? Fallen Angels ends, Hellions starts. We've got the same, you know, we've got the same focus character here in in Psylocke. I feel like this was maybe supposed to continue as Fallen Angels, but maybe, maybe Fallen Angels was a, uh, maybe it was a dead property. You know, um, the sales on Fallen Angels weren't stellar. Uh, we did go through them ages ago when we finished covering uh, the miniseries, but sales were not stellar. It's always in Marvel's best interest to launch a new number one. Um, Hellions might be an IP they were trying to renew a copyright on. Who knows? You know, uh, whatever the case, I I definitely have um, all the confidence in the world that Zeb Wells could make even something like a path interesting. <laughs> Whereas uh, when we talked about it last time, it was too a little too poetic. Uh, where here I feel like we could actually get a little bit of meaning behind it here. Andrew wraps up with, I could keep on rambling about how this issue was perfect and how much I loved it, but I'd just be repeating things you and I have already said. So until John Greycrow gets a proper new code name, make mine X-lapsed. And yes, thank you for sharing your thoughts on the MVP of this line here. A wonderful, wonderful series. And I say this every time we talk about Hellions. If you're not reading Hellions, what are you doing with your life? Read Hellions. It's a damn good story. It's it's everything I never thought I wanted from an X-Men book and more. It is wonderful. But thank you for sharing your thoughts there on such a wonderful issue. It's great to uh, it's great to get to revisit the things that we enjoy the most. Like Hellions, which you all should be reading. Next up, our friend Jason has some pre-event finale check-in for us here. He says, I'm writing this after reading X of Tens chapter 19, a.k.a. cable number 6. Hey, we just finished that one last episode, so we are good to keep reading. Uh, Jason continues, 
I hope we're all enjoying this journey through the X of MacGuffins, aka whose sword is it anyway, where the duels are made up and the stakes don't matter. I hope you've seen that old Drew Carey improv show, otherwise the previous sentence is even less funny than intended. And yes, we have talked about whose line is it anyway, as your follow-up email <laughs> mentions there. Uh, Jason continues, Imagine, if you will, tearing the Battlelog info page out of this issue of Cable and magically faxing it back to your earlier pre-event self. I suggest that your earlier self wouldn't believe it, and that's even after getting over the whole magical time-traveling fax machine part. We do get one quite satisfying sword fight out of Gorgon and the White Sword, but even that fun is tempered because it was so transparently a plot device designed to arbitrarily force the score back to a tie before the telegraphed final bout. Could you imagine? Oh boy. You know, I'm glad I didn't know, but, uh, you know, part of me does wonder. I, I gotta find someone who hasn't read this and give them that page. Just be like, I, I, I wonder if uh, there are any listeners who have dropped off who I could uh, maybe send that battle log page and be like, hey, you want to you wanna read this uh, 22-part story and <laughs> see what this means to you? Uh, the Gorgon and White Sword fight. I feel like uh, in my head canon, I massaged that into making sense by suggesting that the White Sword was doing that on purpose, uh, where he hates the Amenthi demons as much as anybody, and uh, he's you know wanting to screw with the horsemen as it is, so... I kind of lampshaded that for my own personal headcanon to make it a little bit less uh, telegraphed. Jason continues, How is this the first big event in the Hickman-Krakoa era of X-Men? What compromising photos and or illicit substances were being passed around that led to all this? Which is the bigger insult to the readers, the recycled art issue of X-Men or the kill-that-kitten-slash-fornicate-that-boulder issue of X-Force? Um, well, if I got a vote, it would be the recycled art in X-Men. <laughs> there has not been an issue since I started this endeavor that made me want to stop more than that. I've said that a few times, and uh, it's usually a Hickman issue of X-Men that gets me to top whatever the last issue was that made me want to stop doing this program. Uh, right now, X-Men number 14 wears that, uh, wears that crown and holds that cursed chalice of... Uh, Worst book yet, <laughs> because it was just so lazy and so insulting. Uh, at least killing a kitten and fornicating with a boulder um, probably got a few uh, retweets, whereas recycling an entire issue was uh, just, a, just a, a real kick to the crotch. Jason continues. But I'm falling into bad habits. I already went through all these stages of comic book grief back when these issues first came out. Now, reliving it along with my ex-lapsed extended ex-family, I, so I should be solidly into acceptance phase. And I am, mostly. I'm honestly enjoying these issues more the second time through. Since I already know what happens, there's no more disappointment to deal with, and I can enjoy the bits of light and fun where they happen and where you point them out. For instance, I more or less understand the history and motivations of the various factions within the Arako side now. The art is generally top-notch. The switcheroo pulled when Wolverine tried to assassinate her whyness was quite skillfully done and took full advantage of the tropes of this line of comics in a way that advanced our understanding of Saturnine's powers and personality. The Otherworld dinner party menu was a delightfully twisted reflection of the diplomatic dinner party menu in an early issue of X-Men. And of course, everything, just everything in the undisputed flagship title of the entire X-Line, Hellions. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think we we definitely got to move the, the 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 flagship crown over to Hellions because boy oh boy is it wonderful. And I agree with everything you said here. I uh, I came to the acceptance phase a little earlier because I realized um, right after the issue that Damien wrote in about Excalibur number fourteen that. Me, uh, you know, holding my cloud of yelling at tarot card and just, you know, railing against this as being a little too silly, a little too strange, that wouldn't make for good listening. It wouldn't make for good radio. It would just be me being um, curmudgeonly. And that's, I mean, some people might enjoy hearing that, but uh, it would make the uh, it would make the episodes harder to uh, create. And I'm sure... I'm sure there's only so much of my whining people can deal with here. So my acceptance phase hit when I felt it was most appropriate. <laughs> and I knew kind of what we were in for. And uh, like you said, you take the bits of light and fun where they are. Uh, things like things like the, uh, the recap page where Wolverine is the only person on it and we hear about Mora's no place in the, the, in the time after he killed Saturnine. Great stuff, great stuff, great use of the comics language And like you said, using the tropes of uh, the the Dawn of X, Tom Muller style You know, the established Krakoan style To move the story ahead here And actually, after we're done, a little, little look into the future here After we're done with X of Swords uh, We're going to look at another book that you'd never expect would have some of those Tom Muller elements in it. And actually, I was quite shocked when I saw them. It's going to be an interesting little detour, and I really can't wait to share it with you all. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I think uh, I think we're all going to get a, a, little, uh, a little chuckle out of it. So we'll get there when we get there, though. But you're right. We take the bits of pieces where we can, where we can. Uh, we enjoy what we can. The bits of characterization have been solid in a lot of these issues. You take what you can get, and uh, we kind of uh, not not so much dismiss the rest, but uh, we accept the rest. You know, you know, banging a rock and killing a kitten and staring into a mirror. It's arm wrestling a spelling bee. It's it's stuff. <laughs> it's stuff. Uh, Jason continues, I do have a few questions. Maybe you or some fellow X-Lapse listeners can help a brother out. One, does anyone outside the Braddock family, saving maybe Jubilee, even like Betsy? Certainly no one else seems the least bit broken up about her death, if you pardon the pun. Yes. <laughs> I, that's what seems so weird. I mean... Like I said uh, during our discussion of Excalibur 14 a few minutes ago... Uh, there really should have been a moment to pause there. It just... I feel so strange. And these are X-Men comics, right? And the X-Men comics have not been... They haven't been the family of books that they've been... That they used to be in quite a long time. You know, uh, when when a death or a marriage or a birth would happen, there would be issues devoted to it in rapid... Quickly. You know, uh, Ilyana dies in Uncanny X-Men 303. Uncanny X-Men 304 features her funeral. It was an entire issue focused on Ilyana's funeral because the X-Men were a family. You know, Kitty Pride came over from England, you know. The X-Men were treated as a family. Not too long after that, you know, less than a decade after that, Havoc dies in, in X-Factor number 149. Cyclops doesn't even mention it. 
Cycl- uh, uh, what's your name? Psylocke dies in um, Extreme X-Men number two or three. Nobody mentions it. <laughs> it's, it took forever for anyone to mention it. it. It just feels like we don't really dwell on these things quite as much anymore. And maybe this is a commentary on just what the X-Books have become. Maybe this is a sign that... I mean, we talked when uh, Storm had her dance with Death, right? Storm danced with Death in that issue of Marauders, and Death reminded her and us that she's the only person out of this entire line that hasn't died. Maybe these characters who have died aren't as attached to one another as perhaps they should be. You know, Wolverine has died. He died during uh, House of X, or House of, uh, House of X number four or whatever. He's died. All of these characters have died, so maybe they're just not as connected as they should be. Maybe that's given the uh, the creative teams a little bit too much credit, or maybe it's just me trying to reconcile it in my own headcanon. But I definitely feel like that stood out to me as a missed opportunity to have a little bit of a reflection there, a little bit of time to mourn, a little bit of a clapback to the uh, interdimensional space witch or witch queen, whatever the hell I'm calling her. Uh, Jason's second question. Why did Pogger Poggity Pog intentionally bring magic inside his armor? How did that seem like a winning stratagem for a guy whose whole deal is that he has tough armor? Yep. <laughs> I can't answer that question. Uh, I, I believe I asked that question during the uh, during the unarmed combat fight. It's like, if dude is wearing a costume, if he's wearing this alligator hide... Why would he put magic inside? Why would he bring her inside to find out that he's a little goblin man? That makes no sense at all. No sense at all. Jason's third question. How and why did Amenth, way, way back when, attack the unified Okara in the first place? If the maps and info pages are to be believed, Amenth is separated from Earth by about a dozen very, very silly other realms. It seems like they skipped past all those places and attacked Okara. Why? We know Annihilation craves conquest, but why that particular place at that particular time? I don't know. <laughs> I have not the foggiest idea. Hopefully, hopefully someone who uh, glazes over a little less than I do when reading about Amenth and Okara and Arako and Krakoan history will have a better answer. But yeah, I don't know. It does seem awfully convenient. Maybe Otherworld was a very different place back in the long ago? I don't know. I really don't know. It seems very... Yeah, it seems like just a setting a table for a story that, uh, that we're getting right now. And uh, without, much, without much reason. <laughs> and without much explanation. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, question number four. Back at the dinner party in Marauders number 14, Bay the Blood Moon spoke directly to Doug. And I thought Doug understood her. Either that or he didn't and thus shouldn't have been so surprised at the wedding later where it turned out that he couldn't understand her. What am I missing here? That's a great question and something that I thought about because I believe I mentioned it in the synopsis of that first dinner party issue that Bay the Blood Moon refers to Doug as like a soft boy or a soft person, soft man. And Doug, he reacts... Um, which I took to mean that he understood her, that he understood that she was insulting him. And uh, I suppose we were supposed to take that as him being kind of flabbergasted that he couldn't understand her. But then, like you put it, 
why would he be so surprised during the wedding that he can't understand her? Or the lead-up to the wedding, that he couldn't understand her? He should have already known that. That feels like a... Uh, and that feels just like one, you know, the right hand not knowing what the left hand was doing. That was just probably an error. Uh, I would wonder whether or not in the collected edition if they'll even include that. Like maybe they'll even, maybe they'll just have her stare at him and they'll remove that uh, that board balloon if they're even thinking about it. I mean, they do have a whole grip of editors on these books, but who knows? I, I definitely think that was an error because. Uh, because out of those two options there, Doug should have either been insulted by her insult or a little bamboozled that he couldn't translate her uh, her voice. So, definitely a mistake. Uh, Jason wraps up with, in any event, but please no more events, until Opal Luna checks herself into rehab to deal with her big, beautiful, blonde, British Brian addiction. Make mine next last. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your thoughts on the back half of this uh of this event, and yes, I agree. Hopefully, no more events for the foreseeable future. Uh, please, please, uh, show us some mercy. Have some mercy, Marvel. We don't need more of this. Um, <laughs> but thank you so much for uh, writing in and sharing your thoughts about uh, the back half of this uh, of this here story. I, I look forward to hearing uh, more when we are uh, when we're out the other end here, so we can all put our heads together and try to make sense out of this. I. I don't know what we're in store for over the next couple of episodes here. It could be, I could be baffled. I could be bedazzled. I guess we'll, uh, I guess we'll find out when we get there. But uh, thanks again for writing in. I always look forward to uh, your missives, sir. Uh, now, if anyone else would like to join in the conversation, please feel free to write in to me. I'm easy to find. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you could uh, shoot me an email, the old-fashioned way, over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Uh, you can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com and also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men, 90s X-Men, no hyphen. And you can listen to a lot of noise, a whole lot of comic book noise, thousands of hours of podcasts over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, I think we just broke an hour, so uh, that's probably a pretty good place to put a pin in it for today. I would like to thank you all so much for sharing this hour with me and allowing me to accompany you on your daily pursuits and endeavors. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Searching for